0: Everybody and welcome back to We've Got
1: Mail. I don't know why I did like that. <laughs> you're feeling, you're thinking happy thoughts. Sure. You're, you're lightweight and airy. That's true.
0: Uh, anyway, uh, this is our this is our letters show. The show where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibbiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh,
1: my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a film critic. For the purposes of this email. Or this particular podcast, that is. Mm-hmm. Not this, this email. email Any emails you might write into this email podcast. Uh, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. Please do. Uh, and uh, how this works, you email us. And we answer your
0: letters. Yeah. <laughs> our, email address, our email address is letters at net. We also have a P.O.
1: box for those who want to send us physical letters. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Uh, P.O. box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. We have no physical letters for this particular ep- episode. We but, did last uh, time, and that was did, very, uh, very cool. Got to write a couple, read a, uh, My v- words are all mixed up in my brain.
0: Which is weird, because usually when that happens, it's because we're recording really, really late hmm. at night. Uh, it is 1144 a.m. for once. Wait, what? <laughs> we have no
1: excuse. D- don't reveal our secrets. <laughs> <laughs> if, if we ever you know, miss, misspeak or say something dumb, we can always blame it on fatigue. We can't do that now. No, we can say we're fatigued. I suppose so. it's still overworked. <laughs> like, Thanks. come on, we're both
0: overworked. Right? This, this, this is true. I was up late last night working. Um, but in any case, yeah, we don't like to
1: dilly-dally right at the front of the episode, so we're just going to jump right in. Whitney, mm. tell us about our first letter. Uh, here's a letter from Moses. Hello, Moses. Hi, hey, Moses. Uh, dear Bibbs and golly gee willikers McCool. <laughs> I'll take that. Thank you again for making me laugh my ass off. Uh, <laughs> comparing the Suicide Squad to softcore porn... Cult film Flesh Gordon absolutely made my day. Yay! Uh there's a monster in uh in The Suicide Squad. The new one. Yeah. And I commented that it should be, be in stop motion just like the monster at the end of Flesh Gordon. Not which, a lot which, of people make which, those connections. Which was connections, a, which but was I'm a glad monster a monster in that movie was called the Great God Porno. <clears throat> right. Uh, which you haven't seen. You haven't,
0: you know, Actually I've never seen Flesh Gordon. Or should, Flesh Gordon. I've never seen Flesh Gordon. Yeah.
1: You, you should see Flesh Gordon. It's unwatchable. Uh is there a sequel? There's a Flesh Gordon 2. I haven't okay. seen which was like 1990 or something. Oh, weird. Okay. I've not seen Flesh Gordon 2. Okay. I haven't seen either, but okay. I'll get around to uh, one of these. Days. To be honest, even though you gave this film a less than kind review, I suspect that James Gunn would be greatly amused by the comparison. <laughs> uh, Bibbs have never seen this film. Well, even though I can't afford to be a patron, I would like to put up put it out there that the next episode of Critically Reclaimed should perhaps be Flesh Gordon. <laughs> It will be one of your funniest episodes to date. Keep smiling, Moses. I will see if it's available on any
0: streaming services, and maybe we can put it on the poll. Mm. That's a fun <laughs> idea. Yeah. I would I would love to like shore up that gap in my movie mm, knowledge. Certainly, I've heard the legends. In fact, I remember they, they used to screen it every once in a while. Oh, it, it was it was through the the
1: midnight movie circuit for a long time. Yeah,
0: yeah. So anyway, but thank mm. you for writing in. I'm glad uh, I'm glad you appreciated our okay. our our odd analogy.
1: Okay. Um, Here's a letter from James from London, and this is uh, goes to a recent episode of Cancel Too Soon. Okay. Uh, Dear Whitney and William, I've just completed your latest Cancel Too Soon on Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which was wonderful to listen to. In it, Whitney mentioned a few UK TV channels and made a couple of mistakes. Yeah. Uh, so with... I thought you might be interested in getting a little local knowledge of them. Yes. Uh... We, we, we,
0: we covered Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which was a British series from 2004 that aired on Channel 4. And uh, Whitney took point on giving us the history of British TV. Well, and we've had a few people coming in to just say, <laughs> we got some stuff wrong.
1: Well, uh, look, I, I didn't step up as an authority. Mm-hmm. I said it aired on BBC Four. And I gave a little anecdotal evidence as to what local views of BBC Four might be. Turns out it was not BBC Four. I yep. was incorrect about that. Channel Four is it's different the... from BBC Four. You're going to see why I might be a little confused. Yeah, there's
0: there's there's a there's yeah. If you don't from the area, you can see Are, a is, little is it mix on up.
1: Channel four or is it on channel four? I got a little little mixed up there. So okay, well, when you put it like that, about, I
0: feel like I feel bad for taking you to task. <laughs> Except I <laughs> well, don't. So let's please, read the letter. And let's take, take you to task. So
1: here here's the, uh, me being taken to task, and I appreciate being taken to task. Um, The BBC runs a few channels, including some of the most popular. The corporation includes BBC America, that has broadcast several shows not originally broadcast on the BBC in the UK, which accounts for a lot of international confusion. I see. Mm. Uh, Between the start of TV in the UK uh, at the end of the 20th century, the number of free terrestrial channels grew from one to five. While we did get satellite and cable toward the end of that period, these continued to be considered the main channels, even after the switch to digital and the massive growth of other channels. BBC One and Two are the first channels. They are owned by the state and funded by the TV license. There's a whole bunch of politics involved in that, but generally not visible in a, a, wide, range of sh- a wide range of shows they put out. Unlike other channels, this funding means that they don't have adverts. Mm. BBC One broadcasts the mainstream stuff, things intended for the widest audience. The cancel-too-soon show Jekyll was shown on BBC One. BBC Two is a grab bag for more specific audiences at a wide range of demographics. Various shows, particularly sitcoms and quizzes, start here, and if they're popular, they're moved to BBC One. Mm. Others are allowed to exist here with smaller audiences, including Red Dwarf. It's also where they used to put imported shows, so it was the home of Star Trek and The Simpsons in the 90s, BBC ah. Two. Okay. There are other non-terrestrial BBC channels, including one for children that was originally called CBBC, but is now known as Seababies, pronounced CBBS, CBBS. Uh, never forgot. Uh, British people aren't smarter; it's just an accent. <laughs> yeah. There's also BBC Parliament, which is like oh. C-SPAN. And ah, finally, okay. there's and finally there's BBC Four. Now you might might be wondering what happened to BBC Three. It was actually taken off the air years ago, but nobody renamed BBC Four. <laughs> <laughs> It's like if you look for the uh, the House movies. There's House, there's House 2, the second story, and there's House 4.
0: Because the horror show was supposed to be House 3. House 3
1: was called House 3, the horror show, but they decided this has nothing to do with House, so they just released it as the horror show. And when it came to make another House movie, they just called it House (laughs) 4 for some reason. Nicely done. Call that one House 3. Anyway, uh, this is where Whitney made his error. Oh, my one error? Goodness. Just the one. In confusing it with... Channel 4, a different non-BBC channel. In fact, BBC 4 started off life as BBC Arts, broadcasting operas, black and white movies, and other highbrow stuff. It's not the, it is now the home of Scandinavian dramas and is currently broadcasting Bob Ross painting shows. Beyond the BBC, the main channel is ITV. This is a direct rival to BBC One, competing for the mainstream audience. Its now most famous uh, its most famous show is Downton Abbey, mm. though that's not typical and has an assortment of detective shows, quizzes, talent shows, and soap operas. Finally of note is Channel 4, home of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, The IT Crowd, and previously reviewed Crazy Head. Many of its dramas take pride in being long... Uh, being ones other channels wouldn't make, such as original UK versions of Shameless and the UK version of Utopia. There are many more channels, but culturally, I think that covers it. Best wishes to you both, James from And Well, thank th- you. Thanks for the rundown. Um, yeah, I've always been a little confused by that, yeah. quite frankly, and you can see why. Yeah, there's 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 a couple Here of in, weird uh, little bits and bobs in there. Yeah, here's. Uh, Maybe this this might be sort of the equivalent here in the United States. When I was growing yeah. up, we had uh, a couple network stations yeah. on on the VHF channels, the very high frequency channels, Yeah. Uh, and that was where the networks went:
0: uh, ABC, NBC, yeah. CBS, and then eventually Fox. And
1: then yeah. we had you know, we had a few others that were non network, but they ran a lot of syndicated stuff. Yeah. Uh, channel nine, Channel
0: yeah. thirteen, Channel
1: nine and Channel thirteen were uh, Kcal yeah. and KCOp here in in Los Angeles.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And then there was the ultra-high-frequency stations, UHF. Channel and, 28. Well, Channel 28 was uh, the public TV channel, yeah. but it was a UHF channel. There were actually about, like, 80 UHF channels. Yeah. And that's where you could find all of the public television. Mm-hmm. And those, those were never any kind of major commercial presence but they always had a lot of really interesting programming Yeah, especially if you're like flipping through all of the main cartoons you were watching as a kid it's like I'm bored of this I'm gonna and the TV I had had two separate dials for the different frequencies yeah me and mine too so you we'd flip a switch and you'd flip over to the uhf channel and you just start spinning through those hundred channels on this dial and eventually you'd settle on a gamera movie or a trans like, or z or something yeah, tra- oh, yeah. Oh, that's where i discovered Transor or z was on a uhf yeah. station i was uh, i was on facebook the other day which i, mm. I,
0: I try not to be mm. uh there's a few people who i keep i can only really keep tabs of in the family they're not going to learn new social media so it's mm. kind of the only reason i'm on facebook but um uh someone had actually asked a question like did TVs used to have dials because they used to say don't touch that dial. And I was like oh no. <laughs> I am so old. <laughs> yeah. We no longer that has become esoteric like my mm. phone is ringing. Or or hang up a phone. That's, yeah,
1: that's something we even you and I didn't do that. Yeah, well, no, I had that. You well, know, well, I guess we had, we had well mounted we phones. phones. Yeah, but yeah h- hanging up a a, yeah. a receiver is is very old practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So like, there's all these things that like, if you think about it, like, you know, there's all these expressions that we have that some of them are so old they no longer really. Makes sense Unless you know the context mm. And I'm now at a point Where I'm living long enough That the context is getting lost Within my own lifetime yeah, yeah, And yeah. that's weird mm. That's a really yeah. weird feeling <laughs> Anyway uh, But thank you so much We We love mm. being corrected and I mean that No absolutely it's, yeah. it's a bit of a bummer That we have to be But don't like s- we'd, we'd rather Be corrected And set the record straight Than not I'd, I'd rather not Just
1: have my ass Hanging out there For <laughs> an item but yeah Somebody correct me Please Yeah 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 And I'm, I know I do it too So thank you so much um, Here is a letter from Mina Hello Mina Hi uh, Mina Dear Choo Choo and the Philly Flash <laughs> I can work with that. Well, yeah. Okay. believe Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. Over the past month, I've been re-listening to the entirety of Cancel Too Soon from the beginning, and I take great delight in the central opening narration used to the early episodes. Um, oh, yeah. There's a story behind that, and we'll yeah. tell in a minute. Uh, I will. Yeah. I'm fast approaching the point where the current stately opening narration is introduced, and it got me thinking about television shows that changed theme songs oh, yeah. at some point during their run, uh, and long-running film series that dropped iconic light motifs halfway through. Uh, top examples that spring to mind: Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm-hmm which changed the lyrics to its theme every few seasons to reflect the change in the host and the Mm -hmm. setting and would eventually replace synthesized instrumentals with real instruments during the Netflix revival. Uh, Planet of the Apes, the iconic organic sound of the original film and its sequel beneath the Planet of the Apes would be dropped for a more traditional score and escape from the Planet of the Apes onwards to reflect the near future setting of the later films. Uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, the theme for the first season of this sci-fi adventure series was the bizarre but rousing March of the High Guard, which sounds exactly uh, what... Exactly like what you get if, you, uh, if John Philip Sousa composed a patriotic march for a far future military organization made up of humans and aliens, and had to include at least one instrument from every alien's homeworld. In all the subsequent seasons, this theme was replaced by an uninspiring theme, best described as a bunch of blustery hoopla. I'm interested to hear your opinions on television and film series that changed their theme music when it worked and when it didn't, and what TV slash film properties you would change the theme music for if you could. Oh, uh, that's different. Okay. My best to you and to all the cats everywhere, salty or otherwise, Mina.
0: Uh, thank you for that. You. And uh, yeah, so the the story is when we started cancel too soon, uh, we we reached out to a friend of mine who had a band, and uh, I asked <clears throat> if uh, they could do some theme music for us. And I said, we don't we don't want much. We just want like 30 seconds and we want some space that we can talk over it and introduce the show. Uh, and um, I, I don't think I communicated it very well because instead of getting something that felt like a TV show, we got something that felt like, you know, kind of like sexy porn. Mm. Uh, and so we decided rather than push back the debut of the show, we decided to just lean into it. Mm. And so we decided to record, uh, a new intro for every single episode and do it in our in our sexy voices. And it was in, always in, very silly.
1: <laughs> inspired very directly by a, a sketch on the TV show, The State. Oh, God, yes. Uh, with Barry and LeVon, where it's, yeah. uh, it's um, Michael Ian Black and uh, and Tom Lennon in sort of like leisure suits. And yeah, they're very lounge lizards. With like, their fists yeah. above their head and they're kind of like slowly grinding yeah. and they're just like, sort of seducing oh, the audience. Yeah. Right, right,
0: right. But the gag is like, welcome to Barry and LeVon. Oh yeah, what do we do this episode? We bought ten thousand dollars worth of pudding.
1: No, it's 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 like two it's like two hundred and forty yeah. dollars. No, uh, Barry Levon, where'd you get two hundred and forty dollars to buy that pudding? Shh. that ain't your concern. Yeah, there's, <laughs> the whole point is if you say anything in that
0: kind of like oh like yeah kind voice, of voice, yeah, um, it just sounds kind of silly. So we leaned into it for a while, but we were we knew we wanted to make a change, and it took a while for us to find someone to. Do something a little different. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we did, we're very happy with it. and, we and Andy, love it.
1: Andy Hentz is yeah. the, the name of our composer, by the way, who uh, was, was an old co-worker of mine, a very talented yeah. musician. Very who, talented. Uh, sadly, I think, has kind of retired from music. That's a shame. He, yeah, he's a very, ta- yeah. very, very talented, but he just sort yeah. of lost interest in the form. I love our
0: theme song a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to ask you a question, so there's, there's two levels to this question, is what are some of shows that uh, that we know that um, change their theme music, or movies mm-hmm. that change their theme music for better or worse, and what shows would we change? Which is an interesting question. Um, one phenomenon I've noticed is that uh, there's a lot of anime shows that change their theme every season.
1: Okay. Um, like the whole theme well, song and the whole opening. Is, isn't that really common? Uh, especially in Japan. Mm. Uh, I noticed this with, uh, like Power Rangers type shows and, mm. and Pokemon as well They change the title of the show every season mm. To reflect like a new setting or a new character uh, Sometimes that's the case yeah. But uh, there are also
0: shows that yeah, There's a new storyline every season That happens but mm. the show itself is functionally the same um, And then uh, yeah for a whole season You'll get a new opening And what I usually find is that Usually the first opening is the good one Every once in a while you get one where like I think the second or third Sailor Moon Was the best um, uh, in terms of opening themes, but uh, or at least uh, no, mm. I'm thinking of the closing credits actually. So second All or third right. closing credits for them, but um, but yeah, I like I, we were watching Food Wars and like we got really into it, and there's like a great theme to it. And then the next season comes along, and it's just like, oh, well this one's just okay. Hmm. Um, there's a show I really love a lot um, called uh, Welcome to Demon School Irumakun, uh, which is about uh, a young boy. Uh, Whose parents are idiots Who don't appreciate him And they sell him to a demon Hmm. And the demon Dotes on him and loves him unconditionally And is the exact kind of parent The kid always wanted And he sends him off to demon school Where theoretically all the demons If they found out this kid was human Would eat him But they actually love him They don't know he's human But they think he's the greatest And it's it got this weird. I haven't seen Ted Lasso, but it's got kind of that vibe where just everything's just there's conflict, but the protagonist is so cheery, mm. you know. Um, but it's great. And the opening credits for the op- for the first season were really wonderful and catchy and great. And then we just started watching the second season, and the second season major step down in opening <laughs> credits really bummed me out. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think of other ones that changed. Twilight mm. Zone changed its theme. People don't talk mm. about that one very often because the. Mm. Mm. Everyone talks about that one a lot. But yeah. There was an original one for a season or so that was not as good, uh, not as
1: memorable. Uh, the most famous example I know of is Happy Days. Um, oh yeah, they yeah, used yeah. Uh, Rock Around the Clock as the the theme song for like the first couple seasons, first two seasons or so, mm-hmm. and then they, <clears throat> excuse me, then they switched to an original song, probably uh, for money Happy Happy Days. reasons, I'm sure. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they just, the, the show got popular enough that they wanted to have their own thing.
0: I Memory series remember Baywatch did that as well. Mm. They uh, they switched it up because yeah, Baywatch was there for forever
1: though. Um, Deep Space Nine changed their theme song. Mm. Uh, the, for the first couple of seasons, oh, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. it was like, uh, it was glory shots of the station. It was just this big sort of like really interesting uh, orchestral piece that like changed meter throughout. It's actually mm. really difficult to play. And um they decided to put a drum beat behind it and they added a lot more visuals to it. Um, the original composer of the theme song hated that because it actually like made it a little too syncopated. Um, but yeah, they kind of. They kind of like updated it and made it a little slicker. Um, mm. I don't mind. I, th- I like the original version better, but yeah. whatever.
0: The Drew Carey um, Show changed their theme a few times. They started yeah, it was off
1: Cleveland Rocks, and the...
0: well, it started it started off with a song that Drew Carey actually sang called "Moon Over Parma," mm. which was fine, but felt a little nice. too Frasier. Uh, and then they yeah. did, and like as a gag, because yeah. it was all very working like workplace, working class mm-hmm. show. Um, they did uh Five O'Clock World by the Vogues as mm. an opening musical number. Okay. And it was Excuse really me. great. It was really, really fun. There's really a lot of energy to it. And so they decided to keep that as the opening theme. And then they switched it off to Cleveland Rocks by the President of the United States of America, mm. which was um a band in the nineties and people don't talk about very much anymore now. But um
1: uh, the uh the lead singer has gone on to become a children's music maker oh i, I buy know, that, author that of children's music I yeah, buy, yeah. Go, they're a very by, playful uh, band it works so. he goes by the name casper baby pants so if you <laughs> want to look him up never heard of that before that's, <laughs> right. um, that's
0: one where i would argue that five o'clock world was the good one mm. cleveland rocks was it's
1: not energetic? really it's, it's
0: energetic but it's not the vibe of the show i guess it not. wasn't about how cool cleveland mm-hmm. was it was about workplace shit so it just felt off mm-hmm. like i get it you wanted to switch it up and make it fun but like it just it ended up just not feeling right to me oh, okay. so um so that's another one right there i'm trying to think of what i would actually which one i would actually change that's interesting uh,
1: well you know what most of the modern ones um mm. we uh got to do a show on um cancelled too soon called nearly departed oh yeah we're with eric idol and he played a ghost living with a sitcom family <laughs> uh Vaguely amusing show, but it had a really great theme song. It's not credited to Eric Idle, but it sounds like something Eric Idle would have composed, which is upbeat and catchy and describes the premise of the show. It's really rare that you get a theme song that describes the premise of the show or has lyrics at all.
0: Mm-hmm. These days, or, that isn't, uh, or that isn't just taken from something else, if Yeah, that's the case.
1: And know? I understand that a lot of modern TV has to adapt to modern viewing habits, and a lot of people skip theme songs, skip intro as, Yeah, uh, a feature on most streaming services. When you're watching TV shows, just watch it, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what, you in a hurry? Um, yeah. I mean, I know I am, I'm, I got work to do, but... Um, yeah, just sit and watch the theme song. Have like a little miniature drama. Have the intro, uh, you know, be incorporated. But a lot of people like to watch multiple episodes in a row. And I understand if you don't want to watch the same theme song sequence, you know, five, six, seven times. You know what was a, kind of a
0: fun one that changed was uh, The Wire. Mm. Uh, the Wire uh, had a t- Tom Waits song. What was it? What was the actual name of the song called? Mm. When you was, they got in. You better watch your back <laughs> You're
1: not doing it right Way go down the hole. It's called Way Down the Hole. Way Down the Hole.
0: Yeah. Uh it took me a second to get there. But every season of whiskey. every season of The Wire they had a different cover of that song as the hmm. theme music. Okay. And uh the, the uh, theoretically it kind of connected to the theme of the season, but it really wasn't important. Yeah. Um I feel like that could be fun for shows that actually have kind of an iconic theme. Like, th- I think the new DuckTales is over now. They like ha- they ran, like, a new series of DuckTales. Okay. But that would have been kind of cool. Can you imagine how many bands would fall over themselves to do a cover of DuckTales that would be used in the opening credits of a DuckTales?
1: Well, they did that. They they re they redid the same theme song for the new Ducktales.
0: I know what I'm saying is every episode be a new band.
1: Oh, there. Oh, wouldn't that's that have been that, cool? That would have been fairly really fun.
0: Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Like that yeah. kind of that would be really mm. really neat. Or like have like different composers do like the X Files theme for every one of the new X Files yeah. episodes. That would yeah. be kind of go like what oh. would Michael Giacchino do with the X Files theme? What would Angelo Badalamenti <laughs> do with the X Files theme? Like, there's a lot mm. lot of fun to be had there.
1: Um. That'd be good, but that's for like well-established shows. Oh, of that course, reviving very specifically, um, yeah. Like for new shows, I wish there was more of an effort to actually put a lot of craft and energy into a really interesting title sequence and a really good song. Yeah, uh, every once in a while we yeah. get it. Once in a while, um, I remember when um, when we watched um, the new Daredevil TV series. Oh yeah, the yeah, new yeah. Daredevil, the Netflix Daredevil TV series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that had uh like, the music wasn't very interesting but that had like an interesting visual opening they actually yeah. did something with that where it's like against this red background it's mm. new york vistas sort of like flowing together in this like an kind of abstract blood way and it look, yeah. it, looks it looked really cool, cool. Yeah. and it was unique for that show mm-hmm. maybe there are other like others like it but um um yeah uh, that that's a cool sequence open with a cool sequence uh, you know we we grew up during the era of program uh tv so they had to kind of explain the premise and get set the tone of the show with a sequence because you might not be watching every episode. There was no guarantee yeah. that every anyone would ever see your show from the beginning yeah, in order. Th- this yeah. was especially exciting with animated programs that I watched as a kid because they would spent way more time and energy on the title sequence mm-hmm. and the music than they did on the show itself. Watch any episode of Thundercats. Thundercats is a prime example of that. The opening credits of Thundercats
0: make it look like the most badass show you have ever seen in your entire life. Mm. And then you watch the actual episode and you realize that they spent way more money on the animation for the credits. Yeah. Way more money.
1: And they got like some studio musicians to do like speed metal guitars in the background. It's like... I don't think it even really matches the tone of the show, which is this mysterious, otherworldly kind of program. Do you
0: remember? That, do you remember that rumor that we we need to move on? But like, do you remember that rumor that uh, James Lipton wrote the theme song to Thundercats?
1: Oh, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah,
0: that was that was like the early two thousands version of that kid from uh, Mister Belvedere grew up to be Marilyn Manson. Like yeah. this, like total bullshit urban legend. But like, yeah, James Lipton, the uh, the the host of Inside the Actors Studio, the one that uh, Will Ferrell mm-hmm. used to impersonate on Saturday Night Live. Uh, you know, this very calm presence and just ask actors all of these like. You know very serious questions And for whatever reason There was a rumor for a long long time That early on in his career He wrote the theme song to the Thundercats And I had in my head <laughs> A short film I wanted to make about that About like how he like Gave up his musical career To settle down into a nice teaching position mm-hmm. And it was kind of like a sad story But also it worked out well Because he got to inspire so many people But the thing, this thing that I had Was this image of James Lipton at a piano just trying to like suss out the song mm-hmm. and he's just tinkling around like thunder thunder,
1: thunder. <laughs> yeah, that scene in, and then he writes it see, down that scene in all of the uh, all of the, yeah. the musical biopics and yeah, he uh, writes bohemian raps writing, writing my big hit yeah. uh, oh gosh what do we got jeez um, uh, itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow point I got it I got it um, <laughs> Of all the songs, <laughs> that's what you chose. All right, let's move on. But but thank you for the, great, thank for the um, great letter. The Thundercats theme song was written by Bernard Hoffer. That's a piece of information I have in my brain. Nice. He also wrote the Silverhawks theme song. Did you know that Bernard Hoffer was James Lipton's real name? Oh, God, shut <laughs> up. James Lipton did not write the theme song to Thundercats. And I, right ju- right. I just looked him up, and um, he he's still alive. He's 86 years old.
0: Awesome. Hoffer uh, is. Yeah, James Ber- Lipton
1: sadly passed away. Oh, James has passed away. Bernard Hoffer, yeah. who wrote the Thundercats theme song. He also wrote uh, the comic strip theme song. C-O-M-I-C-S-T-R-I-P. Come and take a trip down the comic strip. You know, no, no idea what uh, you're talking yeah. about. Nobody remembers the comic strip. No. May. It's 1987. Was it canceled too soon? Maybe it was one of those things where they, like, rotated through, like, five different shows. Oh, it was like, like a block were, of programming There were, there were, two, there were five shows, okay. but two slots, and you got, like, a random two. Got it. Okay. Well, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> oh, and look at that. Uh, Bernard Hoffer also wrote the, uh, the the News Hour with Jim Lehrer. Uh, I meant, let's move on with another email. Oh, fine. <laughs> getting really excited about stuff. Anyway, here's a letter from Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCule. Very little extra W's in the spelling there. Nice. Um, I had one of those moments where my brain took me down a very strange rabbit hole and I figured I would ask my question to you too. Ooh. Oh, I love rabbit brains. Uh, Big Bird of Sesame Street fame. Yes. It's one of the most famous creations of Jim Henson. Yes, He's said to be only six years old.
0: Uh, okay. That's, that's the way he he's, was. He's a he, child. He's he was a, written
1: yeah. to have the, the mentality of a six-year-old. Yeah, yeah. He currently stands at about seven feet tall.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm sure we all know uh, about... Uh, about Big Bird, but six years at seven feet is rather impressive. What if... He was part of the Kong of Skull Island universe. I see (laughs) where we're going. Okay. Because uh, Kong is smaller in Kong Skull Island than he is in the the Godzilla movie.
0: Yeah, he kept growing. He was a baby. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: And we apply the same offset that Kong from the the aforementioned movie was not yet fully grown and could still get even bigger, eventually being big enough to take on Godzilla. Does that mean that Big Bird if he ever ages, because he's been six, six years old since November of 1969, could eventually grow as big as a kaiju and fight Godzilla or Kong or Hedera or, or Gidora, etc. This led me, uh, led me to want to ask you, which Muppet would you want to see to grow to enormous size and fight Godzilla? Okay. I have my answer, but I'll let you know in a postscript because I don't want to influence your choice. Uh, thank you for reading my fairly ridiculous question. I hope you gentlemen are in good health and that Luca keeps off the counter as being a good little kitty virtual head <laughs> scratches from me. Sincerely, Jeremy. Thank and, you. and there is a the postscript here, but let's discuss this. Let's,
0: let's discuss this seriously. F- so first off, important philosophical how big does big bird get is a good question. Mm. Um, you know, here's the deal. He's six, but you know, in bird years, you, most birds would be fully grown blonde before that. Mm. So there's a decent chance that in the actual continuity, that's about as big as he's getting. Now that's here's, as big as he's going to get physically, but mentally he's only six. Okay, so I'd be willing to accept that. However, for the purpose well, of conversation, if, right. let's assume he becomes the size of a planet.
1: Well, he's he's if he's been six since 1969, he could just be incredibly long-lived. Yeah, he could belong to a species like he could have been born one century. Like one, century, like one yeah.
0: century to Big Bird is a year. To, is a year. One century to us is a year to Big Bird. Very so annoying. like he's, so, he's six
1: centuries. So old So he, he could eventually grow and mature, but hmm. this would take
0: you know, millennia. However, the image of Big Bird being like 20 stories tall and like oh. towering over a city is such a wholesome image to me. <laughs> because,
1: you know, he'd be like, sorry. Oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. No, oh, you're like, good at it. Actually. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I can't do it. Do a, do a Big Bird. Um,
0: I love I, I recently not that long ago rewatched uh, Sesame Street presents Follow That Bird, uh, which is <laughs> adorable. That movie.
1: It's incredibly sad that movie. it's, a it's loose, got a lot of melancholy. It's in got it.
0: melancholy, but it works out okay, which mm. is why it's fun. That's that's like the old Disney thing where it, like it doesn't matter that Geppetto gets eaten by Monstro or that Pinocchio gets like kidnapped because mm. at the end it works out fine, right? Um, kids, there's this tendency to like keep kids away from serious drama, but kids love that. They just want to know it resolves okay. Mm. Like that's what matters. So. There's a little bit of that, and follow that bird. But yeah, follow that bird. If you, I feel like it's fallen out of favor, and people don't talk about it very much. No, but well, uh, Big Bird is basically a a, a bird like foster service tries to find big bird, a bird family because they figure Mm. he needs to be with quote, his own kind. Yeah. But he's, he moves, so he moves away from Sesame street, but he's really unhappy. So he runs away to go back and everyone from Sesame street upon finding out that big bird is missing Mm. runs across country to try to find him. to save him. So it kind of becomes like, it's like a little bit of cannonball run, but it's not a race. They're just all chasing around and like just sort of randomly, Mm. uh, uh, paired off. And, um, it's really funny. It's really sweet. It's a really good movie, and I hope more people see it. But uh, so then, but to answer your other question: Which Muppet mm. should fight Godzilla? My one rule with this: <laughs> You're not allowed to say Animal. Animal already did it. He didn't fight Godzilla, mm. but he did become giant Grew in the Muppet an, movie. So that one's a cheat. You
1: can't pick. You can't pick Animal. Uh, it's also kind of the obvious answer too. Yeah. So, oh, because I- Animal would love it. Oh, I, I, I know right away. I would not pick Animal right away. Who would, who would you pick? I'm picking Beaker. Because uh, <laughs> A, Bunsen would do that to Beaker. <laughs> oh, of course Bunsen would do that. Yeah, that's true, yeah. And, uh, and Beaker is so baffled by the world around him that yeah. you know if he saw another monster, he'd panic and just lay into it. <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> get away, get away, get away, get away! My, but, but you know, in, in, in the...
0: the Squeaky language. The of course. My, my first thought, mm. and I realize why... It's a bit of a cliche, so I decided it's not it's not my pick. My mm. first thought was Sweetums. Oh, because well, Sweetums he ca- never... He's, he's, he's already kind of big, a big, giant monster. Big monster anyway. But yeah. also
1: he never gets anything to do,
0: which is a shame. <laughs> and I always like Sweetums.
1: Well, he's, he's a visual gag. That's, that's Sweetums.
0: But uh, no, my actual pick... Mm is Miss Piggy,
1: because <laughs> Miss Piggy knows how
0: to fight. That's true. She's, you, can,
1: you can imagine she's Miss the only Piggy, like,
0: squaring o- up like a boxer. You she's know? the only
1: only Muppet that has, like, actual fight skills. She's yeah. constantly hitting people. Yeah, no. She Miss has martial Piggy, arts training, that kind Miss of thing. Miss Pig and you
0: know what? And, you know, people would be, like, photographing her, and she'd be, like, totally into it. Mm-hmm. Like, she, she would love it. Like, it would actually work out really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh, God, she always I... wanted to be the biggest star in
1: the world. No, I just want Miss Piggy versus Godzilla. Right? Isn't that a great idea? You've Gotta get Frank Oz back though, at least one more time. Toho needs to buy the rights to the Muppets off oh, of Disney. God,
0: please. <laughs> oh my God, that'd be the best.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, Disney, we dare g- you give up on the Muppets? Just give, like, give, you don't know what you're doing,
0: doing with them. However, however, I've been I will kind, say of, this. kind of
1: handling them and mishandling them. Some are good, some are bad. You don't know I, what you're doing with them. I'm going to give
0: Disney one more chance because they did announce one Muppet project that uh-huh. I'm actually uh, curious about. Oh. Uh-huh. Which is, there's a Disney Halloween, there's a Muppet Halloween special coming out this year where they go to the Haunted Mansion.
1: At Disneyland, yeah. Yeah,
0: which is pretty close to what I've always wanted, which Mm. is Muppet Dracula. I always Uh, thought, like, mm. Muppet and horror, they've never really combined them outside of a couple of sketches. And I always felt like that would have actually been a really good, kind of fun pairing for them. Mm -hmm. Because Muppets are really funny when they're scared. Or when they're or, panicking,
1: you know. Hmm. So like, it or when could work out really good. Or when they're monsters. Or when they're monsters. Remember when uh, when Kermit was a vampire and bit Vincent Price? That's one of the cutest gifts anyone's ever made. <laughs> so you probably find that gift so around, but because <laughs> Vincent Price looks so shocked, like I'm like... betrayed. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was like a, an improvised moment. And, oh, probably and Vincent but... Price, is like ah. Is... <laughs> Vincent Price, always game. You gotta love Vincent Price.
0: For anything and everything. But that's a fun one. Thank you for that. Uh, I think Big Bird would not fight Godzilla. Big Bird would hug Godzilla, and Godzilla would love it. Uh, But Miss Piggy Mm. would fight, and Miss Piggy (laughs) would... would... I think Miss Piggy would kick his ass, personally, but we will see how it goes. Mm. Uh, So what else we got? But... uh,
1: the oh, postscript, the, though. Oh, that's oh, right. The post-script, yeah. J- Jeremy has has also added uh, their two cents. Uh. Uh, so I have two choices: uh, one from Sesame Street and one classic Muppet. From Sesame Street, I feel like Super Grover
0: would <laughs> probably be the best
1: hope for humanity. Yeah. My Muppet of choice would be uh, would doom humanity, but I'm sure we'd all love to see Godzilla square off against a giant Swedish chef. <laughs> <laughs> Because you can
0: just Mm. imagine him like he saved everybody, and then like just starts picking them up and like starts frying them, Mm. like you know, like yeah, you're right. That would doom humanity. That wouldn't work out well for any of us.
1: (laughs) Prefer to take the builder to mercy. I kind
0: of want to see New Zealand just pick up like giant squids and like throw them at people, like pick up whales. Oh, would
1: would New Zealand have access to giant fish? (laughs) By the coast, Godzilla used to come to Japan. Picking up, just, sure. Be weird of New Zealand, didn't? How much, have giant how much prep time does New Zealand have <laughs> to fight Godzilla? Oh my god! All right, moving on. <laughs> this is absurd. I love it. Okay, um, here's a letter from Thomas M. Hello, Thomas. Um, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCule. Uh That's me. Pop culture obsessives like yourselves have a fascination with finding treasures few others have seen not yeah. in a gatekeeping only a true film fan has seen this sort of way that excludes others more in a pop culture historian sort of way that allows us to witness something lost through time. I recently discovered I I'd unintentionally seen one of only had been one of only a few to witness two such rare film oddities that have mm. never been, never been released commercially. Ooh. Uh, number one, when I went to South by Southwest in 2015, one of the films I saw there was bone in the throat, the crime drama starring Tom Wilkinson based on the novel of the same name by Anthony Bourdain. Apparently, the South by Southwest screening is the only time this film has any played anywhere and has never been commercially released to the public. Based on what I remember of it, that was probably a wise choice. (laughs) Number two, I'm one of the one of the dozen people who saw DJ Caruso's gothic ghost drama, the disappointments room during its brief theatrical run. While it was a boring, forgettable film. There was one amazing, unintentionally hilarious sequence that stood out at one point. Star Kate Beckinsale goes into an elaborate, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf style, drunken breakdown monologue in front of her husband and friends at a party, throwing plates and smashing a cake in the process. Oh, that sounds amazing. Um, when the film was later put on Netflix, I scrubbed through uh, trying to find this scene to relive all the giddy camp joy of it, only to realize that it had been, that it was gone. Upon further oh. research, I realized that I hadn't dreamed of this glorious scene out of a bored stupor. Apparently, the scene was only shown theatrically, having been scrubbed from all other home video versions of the film, I assume out of embarrassment. Mm. So my question to you is, what are your favorite examples of such film rarities that you have stumbled upon? A festive release with a decent sized talents that somehow never got screened again, a theatrical release uh, featuring a scene that was later removed for home video, a director's cut with work print time codes at the bottom that you found mm. in an unmarked VHS. No matter how small <laughs> or unforgotten the film may be, I'd be curious to hear such tales from seasoned pop culture exploring veterans such as yourself. Thanks, Thomas M.
0: Yeah, those kinds of rare experiences... You rarely plan for them. Oftentimes, mm. it is something like you go to a film festival and that movie doesn't get picked up. Yeah, uh, that almost happened when I saw that movie that we both like by Escal Vote, uh, Blind. That's right. I saw that at Sundance. I loved it at Sundance, and then it never got distribution for like a couple of years, and then it had a blinker—you'll miss it—theatrical release, and just got dumped unceremoniously on streaming. Uh, but for a while, I was like one of the very few people who ever saw that thing. Um, there was also a while, and I, this was very cool. It's less cool now, but. Uh, the Other Side of the Wind was a movie that uh, Orson Welles filmed all but like one scene uh, and uh, never was, able, was never able to finish putting together for a variety of bullshit reasons, which you can look up. I'm not going to get into it. Um, There's a whole documentary on it. Yeah, pretty good documentary too. Um, but this movie was not available at all, not screened at all, not shown at all uh, for decades. But I happened to have a short gig at an editing house where they were putting together a pitch reel of it to try to, like, try to get this damn thing made. So I there was a time where I had seen about 15 minutes of this movie that no one else had, or almost no one else <laughs> yeah. had. And so that was very, very cool. Uh, and now, of course, the whole movie is out there, and it turns out the movie is brilliant, and please go mm-hmm. see it. But yeah, it's not quite as special as it used to be. The one thing that I can think of is a movie that was released but barely seen and then had a an attempt at a revival hmm. that never quite got off the ground, which is a damn shame. And it's a film called The Plastic Dome of Norma Jean.
1: Weird, okay. Uh, which
0: is a weird title, amazing movie. A truly amazing movie. So this is a movie that was written and directed by Julian Compton. Hmm. Um, and it stars a bunch of people you probably never heard of. Uh, Sam Waterston had a small role in it. Before he was anybody, this movie came out in 1966, uh, and uh, it's about a girl who is uh, just kind of a, a easygoing, friendly, party-going girl, you know, hanging out with her friends. But um, she starts getting a reputation as a psychic, and then they start turning her into a roadside attraction, which eventually turns manipulative and abusive and horrible. Huh. Um, it is. Really fucking good. <laughs> and I keep waiting. I, I keep hearing rumors that maybe it's gonna get picked up by like some company, Kino or Criterion or whatever. Uh if they ever do, please go see it. I was able to go to like one of the very few theatrical screenings that they've had in this century. It had like a couple of like it aired in like it came out in like the sixties, gone. Nobody ever talked about it again. Rediscovered, like Seven years ago now Mm. Uh, And uh, yeah It was great Uh, So that's one of the ones that I cherish a lot And I try to keep mentioning it as much as I can In the hopes that someone will be like Oh, yeah, we should we should release that. We have the rights to that. Like some, some, Somehow in the consciousness, it'll like just leak out.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: What about you? You guys seen anything that no one else has ever...
1: Oh, uh, c- quite a few, actually. I, I mentioned this on our commentary track for Mystery Science Theater, but I got to see the original cut of them. Oh, we, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was part of the test audience before they had uh, cut it down to the theatrical release. It was a, l- a lot longer. Mm. Um, in the cut I saw, they, uh, in order to manufacture a reason for the characters to leave the, the movie they were watching within the movie... Uh, they just put the real breaks up on camera. Mm-hmm. It's like end real one, okay, and now we have to thread up. I evidently they don't have one projector, so mm-hmm. they would go out in between all. Well, these ever since reels. TV's
0: Frank like uh, mm-hmm. like evolved into a new form of consciousness, mm-hmm. Doctor Forrest has to do it all himself, and he's not a good projectionist. Right, <laughs> that's, what, that's all you had to say. That's there's your no prize. Yeah.
1: Uh, so there was that. There was an entire other sequence because uh, there were more real breaks where. Um, the ship ran aground on some kind of problem and they started losing air and uh, Mike started to suffocate and die. And Tom Servo had to like rocket through the air to push a button to repressurize the cabin. That was mm. an entire action sequence that was cut out of the movie and the ending was different. So I got to see that version of the movie and I'm sure you can find bootlegs of all that stuff somewhere, but the, that stuff's never been officially released. Um, I got to see the Mitch Hedberg scripted comedy film, which never got a theatrical release at the Cinef family mm. uh, of, um, really, mm. uh, wonderfully curated, uh, former art house here in Los Angeles. That was, uh, rather unfortunately run by some pretty monstrous people, but, uh, really well programmed. And I got to see, uh, this, it was called Los Enchiladas. Mm. And it was, it was a very clerks type comedy film about, uh, a. A single day at uh, this really kind of not very well-run family restaurant uh, written by famed comedian Mitch Hedberg. Uh, What else did I get to see? Oh, I
0: thought of Mm -hmm. another one. Um, Mm -hmm. I was at a... uh, It was supposed to be an evening with like the creators of The State, and it was Thomas Lennon and Robert Beckham. Oh, right.
1: This was a pilot, not a movie. What happened
0: was it was supposed to just be a retrospective, and then when they actually got on stage, and they were like, hey... Here's the deal. This is not a retrospective. We just weren't legally allowed to announce what we were going to screen. And so instead of showing a whole bunch of stuff with the state, we're going to show you a failed pilot we did called the Alabama. It's a science fiction show. Yeah, it was it was the guys who did the state and Reno nine one one and it was their version of a Star Trek series mm-hmm. where the entire crew of the of the Alabama instead of the Enterprise was really shitty.
1: They're just the worst possible people. Terrible
0: human beings. Betray, betray each, each other
1: and into petty shit and they're all like racist and yeah. awful. Yeah.
0: And it was it was a very, very funny show. Eddie Izzard played uh, sorry, Eddie Izzard played the um like the godlike being who tests them like in many a star trek episode uh but they also told us some of like the stuff that they wanted to do with the series that never got picked up uh, and um one of the things they said was the reason why every single character on the show has facial hair is because at some point in the series we would reveal that we're in the bad mirror universe
1: <laughs> and there's actually a good version of all
0: of these characters <laughs> and i'm like that is fucking genius I love all of that. It was so damn funny. Uh, And to the best of
1: my knowledge, it's never been released anywhere else, which is a shame. I got to see a broadcast of Welcome to the Fun Zone, which was this Lorne Michaels produced um, like vacation replacement for Saturday Night Live that they tried once and it failed miserably. And it was going to be hosted every episode by Dr. Demento. Oh. Uh, Weird Al Yankovic was going to do the music for it. And they had, and in the first episode, their special guest was Bozo the Clown, and <laughs> it sounds like amazing. The, the original Bozo the Clown. And, yeah. it, and it was like and it was called Welcome to the Fun Zone. It was this like big, wild, kind of like Pee Wee's Playhouse version yeah. of thing, where everything's like sort of cluttered and surreal. And they were gonna have like animated sequences. I think Bill Plimpton did some animated bumpers for this show. Uh, and okay. This sound this sounds good on paper, right? It's like the it whack, sounds the, like a really fun. Idea, it's like yeah. the wacky drunken version of Saturday Night Live. It's like the more yeah. fun version of Saturday Night Live. And I got to see this. I got to see a portion of it anyway, a surviving portion. Where uh, Doctor Demento got to interview Bozo the Clown, and Bozo the Clown said, "I went to visit an impoverished village in Africa, and they showed footage of that. And it's the, <laughs> it's like the the sickest, most twisted, least funny thing you've ever seen. But like it was like to Bozo point,
0: doing Bozo, Bozo in in, in the like clown outfit, really like trying oh, to wow.
1: trying to like yuck on this impoverished African village. Oh my god! It's like what are you?" Is, Who is, the is, is hell this, came up with that? Is this like a Neil Hamburger Andy Andy Kaufman type Jesus. prank that they're playing on the audience? Or is this just really terrible? It Jesus. turns out it's just really terrible. Jesus. So you can see it's, it's why awful. the show. You can see why like it wasn't Ooh. really well like, scripted or well thought out at all. Apparently. It's just like they never got past the concept phase. Oh my god. Yikes. Uh, but yeah, Welcome to the Fun Zone was something I wish they had done right, because that sounds great. Ooh. <laughs> Geez, Okay.
0: Mm. Well, on that note, let's let's move the hell mm. on. But um, yeah, um, yeah, I, I I crave those experiences, those like one one of a kind experiences, and mm. they don't come
1: around very often. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, here is a letter from Bill. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Um, Dear Business Whitney, in your review of the Suicide Squad, you critiqued it for having nothing to say, in contrast to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2's themes about fatherhood. Personally, I would rather watch a dozen movies about nothing than one more <laughs> one more about Hollywood screenwriters' daddy issues. You're <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, not wrong, okay. Uh, daddy issues. Um, but I was intrigued by a theory you mentioned in passing that those fatherhood themes are not in so many movies because the screenwriters are weepy man-babies in different need of a hugs and validation, but because they're lazy hacks who slotted in an easy character motivation into their movies about nothing. Could you explain a bit on the prevalence of this theme in Hollywood movies and how sincere you perceive it to be? If you could replace daddy issues as the go-to motivating factor for thinly written protagonists, what would you put in its place? Best Bill in uh, San Francisco. Um, Oh, oh, definitely revenge. No, I'm (laughs) kidding. Uh, um, So to
0: to clarify here, we were talking about how uh, the Suicide Squad isn't really bad a lot. Like, Hmm. they address some political stuff, but they're afraid to engage with it. Um, And one of the things we compared it to is that the Guardians of the Galaxy movies... No, from, the from the same one. director, which is yeah. why we
1: drew the, the comparison Especially
0: the second one uh, really delves into the issues of fatherhood and found family And I, I, I hope I didn't make it sound like too cynical Because I feel like some movies do fall back on it because it's easy mm-hmm. But the reason it's easy is because it's relatively universal for people to have lingering issues with the way they were raised mm-hmm. um, Then that takes a million different forms the way we were raised, by the people we were raised, whether it was positive, uh, absentee, oh, hurtful, well. there's a million different ways that that can take place. And so when you're making a movie, especially if you're trying to make it connect with as many people as possible and you want to have some sort of big emotional hook, having something to do with the family unit is its kind of a layup, isn't it? Like, mm, it's, its I'm not it's saying it's, it, there's nothing interesting to be said about it. Of course there is but it's also kind of right there.
1: Yeah, everybody has a family ersatz or otherwise yeah. and uh, or or if
0: they're missing a family,
1: the lack thereof mm-hmm. is a story in and of itself. So okay. yeah. Um part of this is something you and I brought up that there we grew up watching a lot of movies about bad dads from the dad's mm-hmm. perspective oh, and it's about them trying to make good and this has been used those incredibly movies recent. fucked me up. <laughs> and you, you can tell that the, these kinds of movies um, let's Liar Liar is an example okay um, good example it's about a dad who lies to his son. He's very bad at organizing, and he lies about. He's a workaholic. Himself, yeah. He doesn't
0: care. He cares more about work than his family. And he doesn't. And, it's, and yeah. it's also engineered, like it's specifically designed to be watched with families, right? So, like, your kid will be watching this with your dad, and so, your dad yeah. will be watching it. Yeah. So, this
1: is uh, a way for um, dads to communicate to their kids what they're going through, mm-hmm. without just saying, "Hey, dad's going through a lot." And it also feels a lot like. Guilty workaholic Hollywood producers Trying to apologize for how much they work
0: Yeah and really it's hard It's hard to shake that sometimes because it takes Mm. a lot Of effort and a lot of time to make even the worst Movie Mm. Um, And there's a lot Of people who are taken away or or Not able to really engage with their families Because they're doing all these projects And so when you make a project that's about the Importance of hanging out with your parents instead of doing Work it's hard not to go That's a little ironic Mm. (laughs) Um but, uh, but in any <coughs> and case We grew up with a lot of these movies Tim mm. Allen starred in a bunch of them yeah, Where like yeah. Oh Tim Allen is a workaholic But dang it He has a kid he didn't know about Who's been raised mm. in another country And he's gotta come here And it's a fish or, out of water Or, my, or my, now he's Santa I'm, oh, not a good, shit. I'm
1: not a good dad So I'll be Santa or And I'm, now I'm, I'm a
0: dog a... for some reason and, mm. and all of these types of movies And this was not limited to Jim Carrey did these Robin Williams did these If mm. Memory Serves Hook was like this um, there, there we go Uh, this idea that workaholic dads were the plague of the turn of the century, um, was really just in a lot of kids media, a lot of kids and family friendly media. Dads were demonized left and right. And that's not to say that some dads didn't spend way too much time at work and not enough for the kids. Of course they did. But these movies tended to have only two gears, either dad doesn't work. And only spends time with kids And somehow this leads to him getting a promotion Or dad works too much There's no, there's no middle ground If dad it's works no, no he's a bad person just the right amount, If dad right. works he's a bad human being <clears throat> And When I talk about how The messages That we put in kids movies mm-hmm. Overt or subtextual Or what have you Have an impact I'm speaking from personal experience and this is one of those I have really internalized the idea that if i sit down to do some work and anybody in my family hmm. whether it's my spouse or my mom or my cat is, is has anything else that i should be like maybe i could maybe be paying attention to that if I focus on work, I'm a bad human being. I've really internalized that shit, mm. and it has been supported not so much by people in my life, but, but by but the, media the media I consumed. consume. And yeah. I, it, it, as a child, this message was hammered home pretty hard, and it's not healthy. The, people need yeah. to work well, people need this, to, uh, to have other pursuits and dreams and finding a balance is a good thing but the idea is that dads need to be punished for this constantly is
1: not a healthy mindset it's th- really not and we're still living down the echo of something that was going on in the United States in uh, starting in like the mid 70s and that's when divorce rates started skyrocketing yeah Uh you look throughout the 1950s, uh, the d- divorce rates are actually very, very low. There was actually kind of a taboo about, uh, getting divorced. Yeah. We even, uh, reviewed a film on, uh, only the best called the Divorcee," d- the Divorcee, which was made in the 1930s yeah. about the taboos uh, surrounding divorce. And those yeah. taboos started to fall away in the 1970s and divorce became really, really common.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, as such, uh, you'll see uh, in in the wake of this real life trend, a lot of movies about single parents raising children.
0: Yeah, initially there was like this big wave of movies about how like divorce was like affecting families, Kramer mm. versus Kramer, that kind of thing. Mm. And then from the eighties and nineties, there was just divorced parents, and oftentimes in the kids' movies, the parents got back together again, as though that was as the- though as though the divorce was a tragedy and not probably the thing that saved everyone's sanity. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that,
1: that was like To cite layer liar again That happens yeah. at the end of that movie Yeah
0: There's always this <clears> idea <throat> That divorce is, Was the problem Divorce was the mistake mm-hmm. And not We Became mm-hmm. different people And well, incompatible Or mm-hmm. whatever Which is
1: Fine And, and, and It I, happens It can I, be healthy I, To break I, up You know I talked about this When we were talking about Of all things Floppy dogs About how there was <laughs> There was a, a A trend in children's entertainment Of yeah. kids who are now On their own Because they have Working parents Yeah and I feel like... They had a lot more free time to go on adventures and, yeah, and find pirate gold. The, the kids of divorced parents are watching these and getting very positive messages. You have agency. And I think those kids are now growing up and becoming executives and are now resenting the fact that they were left alone to have their own agency because they weren't mm. having Fluffy dog adventures. Yeah. They were latchkey kids who were preparing meals on their own.
0: Yeah, If you didn't actually find E.T. the <laughs> extraterrestrial in your shed... It wasn't really the same thing, was yeah, it? I was just, different I was, vibe. I was
1: just doing homework and waiting for my parent, my single parent, to come home from work because that's what we needed to do to survive. Yeah, and, there's, and uh, there's as baggage. Such, no one gets yeah, out of
0: childhood without at least some baggage.
1: As, as such, I'm noticing more and more now in the 2020s, now that uh, those kids are adults, movies about resentment of uh, absentee parents yeah. or resentment of uh, distant parents and how mm-hmm. you had to sort of find your own bliss. And that wasn't about going on an adventure on your own. That was about being alone. Yeah. And it's about fighting a childhood of loneliness. So I think mm-hmm. we're which still, really is, which
0: really is, in, which takes yeah. us back to guardians of the galaxy volume two, because that's hmm. about an absentee dad.
1: Yeah. 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 Dad and... went
0: out to cigarette for cigarettes one day and decided mm-hmm. to just fuck off and be a planet for 30 years.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> my dad went out for cigarettes 50 years ago. He comes into the door. He's a sloth. I forgot my keys. <laughs> <clears throat> Okay, that's, that, that's, that, that's not my gag, that's, but uh, that's, so that's, that's gag. what I accumulated from yeah. my, my <laughs> too much time on Twitter. But uh, yeah, um, but I think that's that's why we're that's seeing a, a lot of, of daddy issues. Uh, part of it is this sort of uh, cultural echo of a, a divorce rate that started in the mid seventies, yeah. but also it is lazy screenwriting. It's you know some people start telling it earnestly, other people imitate yeah. it, and it becomes it, a, a trope. It's
0: easy to fake it's easy to just drop in the iconography of a familial theme with heartbreak and you know growth and all that stuff but to do it well is tricky Mm -hmm. to do it well requires actual like personal insight into how these things make you feel and not everyone's ready for that not everyone's done as good a job with that and um yeah, I-, I think Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 actually does that bit okay. I just think it's really sloppy. Uh, and they do
1: it with all of the characters, like uh, yeah, oh yeah, it's true. You know, yeah. All, all of the characters, Michael have, Rooker's
0: got a big bar, Rocket Raccoon's got a big part, yeah. yeah. and and, yeah. Um, and Groot, Groot is now a child who's uh, got a bunch, bunch now, of parents. That, now there. they
1: have to be parents, uh, and yeah. you know, Gamora and Nebula talk about how Thanos is their dad, and Thanos yeah. is this like mad soldier. Yeah, so
0: at least they're ex- that, that one. They're actually exploring so it at the, the they're, very they're least. They're doing
1: it from a bunch of different angles, yeah. but it is still a pretty common trope.
0: Exactly, and again, it's there's something universal about it, which is why you'll see it going back. It's it, right into the Greek tragedy era. You'll see daddy issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the when it's perfunctory, when it's pat, when it's repetitive, that's when it starts feeling like lazy mm-hmm. writing. But um, yeah, anyway, so there's there's always a reason why these things exist. Maybe it's a good reason, maybe it's a bad reason, but I think we've touched upon some of them. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's more more layers that we could explore, and of course this isn't universal to everybody. We're looking at it in sort of a general way and also in our own personal experience. Anyway, that's that. Mm-hmm. That's it, for, uh, for, <laughs> that's that's it right. for the podcast today. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to We've Got Mail. Uh, thank you, everybody, who wrote in. Uh, if we didn't get to your letter, we apologize. We try to catch up, but we always have more letters than we have time for. So feel free to write us. And, again, uh, we would love to. We really do love hearing from you. It means a lot to us. So, uh, once again, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And also our P.O. box is...
1: Uh, you can write us of actual physical letter. It's a uh, critically acclaimed podcast. Uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064.
0: And, of course, we're on Twitter, at Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani.
1: I'm at Whitney Seibold.
0: Uh, if we want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. If you want more critically acclaimed, that is a good place to go because we got a lot of it. We have been reviewing every single episode of Star Trek ever made. We're over a hundred episodes in. That's a big backlog that can be available right now, just the click of a button. We've also been doing every single episode of Batman. We've got uh, old reviews of uh, TV movies. We did every episode of Firefly. That's over now, but that's still available for you. Uh, we're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We got commentary tracks. It's it's a lot. Uh, and so, very special thank you to all of our patrons, without whom none of our shows would exist. Uh, And uh, if you can't afford to be a patron There's other ways to help Uh, You can subscribe if you haven't already You can uh, leave us a review Wherever you find us Like actual couple sentences and a star rating Really helps other people find the show Mm. Follow us on those various social media services Is also really great You can also uh, listen to Whitney's other podcast Mm. All about Ovid Spelled with
1: all O's Um, All about Ovid Um, uh, Ovid is a wonderful stream service And I and B Peterson over on their podcast network are talking about what we saw on Ovid that week. Yeah. Ovid is a wonderful deep cut art house kind of stuff. Yeah. So if, you, if, you like, if you feel uh, like
0: uh, Criterion has yeah. gone too mainstream for you, Ovid is the place to go. Uh, and thank God there's a place for that. Uh, and of course, uh, M. Lapis de Silva and I have a soap store, handcrafted soaps designed by us. Uh, head on over to Salt Cat Soap. On Twitter or Instagram There should be a link to the Etsy store there Or go to Etsy and search for Salt Cat Soap All one word You'll find a whole bunch of unique designs uh, That have been created Mm. by one or both of us Um, And uh, thank you everybody who's already tried out the soaps Means a lot to us Thank you for your positive reviews And that is it for We've Got Mail So thank you everybody once again From the bottom of our hearts Sincerely yours Bibbs and Whitney